Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. My guest this week is Casey Roll, an actor you might know from shows like Hannibal, Wayward Pines, Arrow, Fortunate Son, and The Magicians, or from the Now Screen Stars package we put together earlier this year. And if you've seen her performance in Calvin Thomas and Yona Lewis's nail-biting character study, White Lie, you know why. Casey picked all that jazz, Bob Fosse's 1979 film about an aging choreographer slash filmmaker who has far too many balls in the air. He's juggling projects, relationships, and a daughter, all while trying to stay ahead of a health crisis that he can't stay ahead of forever. Featuring an amazing turn by Roy Scheider as Fosse's avatar, Joe Gideon, supported by a fully engaged work from Anne Reinking, Leland Palmer, Irsbet Foldy, Ben Vereen, and more, it's an unforgettable work of clear-eyed autobiography that's also as glitzy and obsessed with spectacle as anything else Fosse ever made. Except it isn't like anything else Fosse ever made. You'll understand. This is someone else's movie. I think this was the first film I came across. So when I was in uh, high school, I danced, and our dance teacher uh, was like, we're going to do a Fosse routine. And I was like, what's that? Great. Um, I'd been used to doing, you know, like, like contemporary and like some jazz and things like that. Um, uh, and she introduced us to the style of choreography and I was like, this is wackadoo. This is like some maverick just like being like, yeah, okay, we could do it that way or we could do it this way and make it funny for once in our lives, not take everything so seriously. Yeah. Um, and so I went on this hunt for everything to do with him and then, you know, ended up watching all of the films he made and then came upon this and was like just fascinated by it and um his approach to that kind of like introspection and like owning of who he was and that all combined with operating inside the box but outside of the box was very fascinating to me so i think that kind of sums it up <laughs> yeah with formative experiences like this when somebody stumbles across a new language and I always wonder if your connection to the film emerges because you're ready for it at that exact moment or because you're not ready for it and you try mm -hmm. the attempt to understand it pulls you in even closer uh, I was I'm thinking I was 11 when it came out I missed it completely theatrically obviously mm -hmm. uh, but I caught up to it on videotape too soon I think like I, <laughs> yeah. I didn't I didn't have the I didn't have any understanding of dance, so I didn't understand mm -hmm. what was so special about Fosse. And then to see, you know, like just the erotica sequence oh. alone, which is a terrible, <laughs> so good. I know it's a terrible pun, but somehow the earnestness of the way he presents it makes sense when you're watching it. But to watch that and think, am I supposed to be on his side? Like, is this, because it's presented as everyone else in the film rejecting it, mm -hmm. but Fosse's making the movie, so he's Theoretically, this is not going too far. He thinks, is he trying to show us that they're not ready for it? Is he trying to show us that Gideon doesn't know what he's doing and he's gone too far? What is the point of the scene? And then watching it again 10 years later and 15 years later and 20 years later, I still don't know, which is so mm. fascinating to me. Like, I, I don't know if even if Fosse has a clear perspective on that scene. It is just so strange and, and specific and 1979 y and. You yep. know, this is this kind of movie really only happened in that window of time. And I mm -hmm. don't know that there is anything else like all that jazz specifically. So mm -hmm. I'm really glad you chose it. But 
so when did you, you would have seen it in like the late 2000s maybe yeah that's probably about about then yeah and I think yeah it's interesting you talk about being ready for it or not and I think parts of it blew my brain wide open and then other parts of it felt so familiar like I have a parent who works in film and a parent who works in theater ah. and so like seeing those two worlds brought together um, felt super familiar and like I could slip inside of it and understood a lot of it and and the jokes that were coming up you know like my mom doesn't work in musical theater but when you know when he presents that song I can't remember the Anyways, but the song is presented and Fo- the Fosse character Gideon is just sort of like trying to bear it and, um, you know, the Gwen Verdon proxy is sort of like making fun of him, <laughs> fun of it to him. I was like, oh yeah, we've all, we've all sat in those rooms. <laughs> yeah. And the, and the film stuff too is, and he, I wouldn't say he dabbled, but he certainly, he only made what, five features, I think. Yeah. And um, each one of them is so distinctive and, and so strange. And, and just even watching what is, like, it's ultimately uh, uh, Ramana Clef about the making of Lenny, which mm-hmm. only shows us the worst scenes of Lenny, right? Like, I, I really like Lenny, but the, the stand-up scenes are pretty flat. They're, they're just mm-hmm. performance. They're not, they're not as interesting visually as the rest of the movie. And it found, I found it fascinating that that's what he chooses to show us in the context of all that jazz is the stand-up uh, Cliff Gorman who is not a particular he played Lenny Bruce on stage uh, apparently but he's not a particularly convincing screen actor in that scene I think it's intentional but again mm-hmm. why what's what is he saying what's he what's yeah. he trying to tell me about how he feels about his own work it's just it feels to me yeah when I was sorry to interrupt you I was no, thinking please. about um re-watching it I was like this is a man who's like sitting this like man as as maker, man as artist, sitting with his failures, like having dinner with his failures, and yeah. and really trying to make sense of them and own them, in a way. And like, for me, like it's interesting that you brought up the uh, the erotica scene, the come fly with us, whatever. But yes. um, to me, that was like, like the whole container is like, here's my meditation on failure, punctuated by bits of greatness. <laughs> <laughs> right. that I'm just going to own and be bold about. Like, Erotica, I was like, he he loves this piece. I think he's proud of this piece, but it's, you know, bookended by being, like, I'm a piece of shit, basically. <laughs> yeah. No, it is. It's really fascinating. Um, Gideon is, like, he's... Joe Gideon is our focal character. He's the representative of the filmmaker. He's all of these things. But I, I think... I like him because he's played by Roy Scheider. And if I saw Bob Fosse playing Joe Gideon, I probably wouldn't connect with him as much. And that, that too, is really a conscious and, and clever choice. Mm-hmm. But it's such a wild swing. Like, it's such a... Nothing else he'd made prepares you for this thing. I, and I, I really wish I'd been able to see it in 1980 with everybody else. And yeah. just, you know, and experience it with an audience. I mean, it won the Palme d'Or. Uh, mm-hmm. Sorry, 1979. I always fight it in my head because... My brain tells me Apocalypse Now on the Palm Door that year, and that was '79, but it wasn't. But it, it was all that. It was all that jazz. But wow. that's even that's even weirder that that year produced both of those films, and they're so uniquely, specifically though those things. Yeah, I can see like shades of them in each other. You know. Like, yeah. In Apocalypse Now, when the Playboy Bunny show up, like that to me sort of still fits. 
yeah. within the all that jazz universe, you know. Yeah, and the and the monomaniacal characters like Colonel yeah. Kilgore would work perfectly well in in all that jazz. <laughs> totally. She'd be weird, but yeah, it's, <laughs> there was just this place where studios were able to release, you know, Kramer versus Kramer. It was that year too, and there's all this other stuff where wow, these deeply personal, really small projects or massive deeply personal really small projects because all that jazz Mm. for all of its excess and you know it's the film that is drenched in cocaine and flop sweat and cigarettes (laughs) it's it's really small it's about a guy afraid he'll lose his family Mm -hmm. like ultimately the the thing that i mean sorry we're gonna jump all over you can't really i i hope (laughs) that people listening to this episode have already seen it because there's no way to discuss it without discussing the way it ends but, you know, the thing ends with a 12-minute disco nightmare fantasia in which, like, it, it all gets pierced when this you hear the little girl's voice just say, don't go, and it's just like the whole thing collapses. <laughs> I just, you know, I watched it again, and I just, I was so affected by that. I know it's there. I, I've seen the movie half a dozen times, but mm-hmm. this time it just really, it's like, oh, that's what this is all about. This whole thing is about how he's afraid he won't make it. Mm. Uh, and yeah, you know, he used his own footage of his own heart surgery. You, you know about that, right? Because that's the weirdest Is part of this. Is that real? Yeah, okay, own... I was like, how did he get that? <laughs> yeah, it's him. It's his own open heart surgery. That's blowing my mind. I know. <laughs> that's I know. Wild. Yeah, it's how he got wow. the release, I assume. But it's just like, yeah. it's it's. Uh, how do you? How do you have, and it's, again, it's in the film, it's throughout the film, but how do you have the presence of mind to set that up with the expectation that you'll be able to use it, with you'll survive to use it? It's, mm-hmm. the ego of, of it is phenomenal. And of yeah. course, like, but, you know, knowing Fosse's work, it's like, well, of course he would try to do it mm-hmm. because he'd know it would make for a great story. Like, there's that, mm-hmm. that theatricality in the narrative and the way that the, the story is told. It's just so... It's so compelling, and that's I guess that's part of the charm, too, right? You're being carried along by this great storyteller, which all of a sudden pulls the rug out from under you. Mm-hmm. But, oh, wow, yeah. No, it's just, it's it's so busy, and, and there are so many balls in the air, and there's that weird little Hollywood satire with the cheap shots through uh, through John Lithgow's character at, oh at, the, <laughs> at the wrong kind of auteur. It's just so much fun. Yeah, it's so true. And I found, too, like... Uh, witnessing like John Luke has a great example and the people that I didn't even clock were in it when I first watched it you know like uh like Wallace Shawn and right, Jessica yeah. Lange I didn't even have I anyway Jessica Lange yeah. as death is perfect <laughs> the angel of death yeah she's Good. so she's so and it she shot through all these filters and veils and it just mm. it's that weird instinctive thing where you just lean in to get a better look at her even though you know that the film like the screen isn't going to yield anything further yeah but but that's it, it's yeah it was, it was so such an interesting way to meet like that whole thread of the movie was like that like death is the ultimate lay for him like that's yeah. the ultimate get and yeah, so yeah. the fact that she's this like alluring like we're all brought into this thing of like oh yeah death feels kind of like death is sort of sexy like yeah i want to get in there it's just very interesting to me that he that she's always a distance but he walks with her like she's right there yeah and how i i i wonder if for him that like provided a a sense of freedom for him like knowing knowing where death was in the room all the time 
that he could just like not run from it. He was like, yeah, she's right. She's right over there. Yeah. I'm just going to do whatever I want. She'll take me whenever she wants. <laughs> That's true. I mean, if you, yeah, if it, if it's not a framing, if it's not flashbacks, but actually a linear time, if he's just checking in with her every now and then while he tries to get one more thing done, that's mm. even more appropriate for the workaholic mode, right? Like totally. he's actually putting her off here and there. Mm-hmm. But you don't get the sense that there's bargaining, right? Like he, you're right. She's, he's checking in with her. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, what's up? Still got time. Okay, cool. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> you haven't become menacing yet. Okay, got it. Got it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's and she is always there um because he's haunted by his own mortality. I mean, we know mm-hmm. he he knows he we know he knows he has a bad heart mm-hmm. and he's racing whatever it is. The the little opening montage with the the visine and the benzedrine and whatever else it is that that gets him out the door in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um and the sense of his life as performance that yeah. you know feels absolutely true to whoever Bob Fosse had to be mm-hmm. to do what he did right because when you're when you're that a specific a talent I guess you have to mm-hmm. perform yourself all the time to mm-hmm. to get people on board to make people feel comfortable to get them to do whatever it is you want them to do mm-hmm. and that then then we see how the manipulation extends to his family and how. Uh, the Criterion disc has an essay in there that uh, points out that mm-hmm. the one time he isn't working is when he's playing with his daughter. Everything else is work, mm-hmm. and it's like, yeah, I get that. I get, and you see the strain of it. You can you can see it in that performance in in Scheider. Yeah, for sure. Well, it's, like I feel like he nailed, like Fosse as a director nailed this like this maker whose work is inherently so affected. Like Fosse's style is so affected. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but the the performances within this crazy container are pretty grounded and pretty honest and and I don't know representing that that like the f- flipping of the switch from like performing self to being self to performing art to making art to yeah it was, it's a fascinating thing to me all of the hats to yeah. speak <laughs> yeah well I mean we were talking about this over email before the episode before you picked your movie and you gave me a list of titles and they're all in some way about public performance or persona performance which like this is just the most meta of them but also the one the whole thing depends on Mm. performance and direction and performance of the direction and everything else it's just it's a really interesting thread to pull on i think it just fascinates me as a human being like in the world we live in now that so much of what we do is so inherently performative whether we clock it or not and like of course like we're always performing to some extent with like other people in the world but social media and all that stuff and sure yeah it's a fascinating bit of new human psyche (laughs) to roll around yeah and i wonder how well we've evolved to deal with it yet like or if we even have because people some people are clearly worse at it than others and insist on doing it anyway yes I don't think we've caught up. I think our brains are like, huh? (laughs) They're just sort of like tap dancing on ice that's about to break. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know what we all know inherently, we all know what trying too hard looks like. Mm. And in social media, there's neediness. Now we call it thirst, but... You know, what what was it for Fosse? What did he, what would it have been for him? It's it's the people who pretend to get it but don't get it. I think that's those mm-hmm. those seem like the most uh, loathsome people in in Joe Gideon's world. The ones who say they're on board and then back away from his genius. 
Mm-hmm. What's the line? I wonder if Kubrick ever gets depressed. Where it's just like... <laughs> it's so funny to think, too, about... Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. The whole reality of the actual world that this movie came out into. And Kubrick and... Yeah. 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 I do often... Yeah, like, what? what is it to be a genius? And that specific type of ego that's like, I think I am a genius. Yeah. But I also think I'm a trash human. <laughs> that, you know, egomaniac with low self-esteem thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I can absolutely identify with the imposter syndrome. Uh, I don't know if I, mm. I don't know if I come along to the genius. Like, the, the, the only people I've met who are, I think, legitimate geniuses are the ones who are least comfortable with the term because on some level, if you define it, it'll go away. I think that's mm. the fear. That's like Soderbergh, maybe is somebody mm. who is like, he's probably the smartest person I've ever met. Um, and he's aware that everyone thinks that. So he tries not to be, which is huh. kind of fascinating. I think it's made him a more emotional, intuitive director as it goes along. But, you know, mm. he can he can be cold and cerebral and just shut off everything else to make his movie. It's how he can work so fast. It's how he can get the performances he gets. Um, but at the same time, when you, when you see him in a human environment, you just, you can he has this thing where he just sort of preemptively cuts the cuts the tension because he's learned that people expect he's going to be some cold weird genius in a corner and he's not he's you know he's got a sense of humor and he's he's relaxed but he's just one of those things where it's like oh no you're you're like trying to hide your superpower and mm. it it doesn't read as phony but you can kind of see the effort sometime of him just trying to dial it down a little it's yeah. I get the feeling Fosse never dialed it down is my point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know that he did either. I think he he used other people's perceptions of him as best he could for whatever he felt he needed, you know? Yeah, yeah, that sounds about right. And the, yeah. the public persona being the private persona, being the persona he uses in the movie. Mm. Um, and then that weird, I hate this phrase, but it's the only one that works, the only one that applies, the knock-on effect of popular culture then deciding that Roy Scheider was Bob Fosse like that version of him is the real person um and like and then Sam Rockwell kind of finding a way to to integrate both of those in Fosse Verdon Mm -hmm. where you know that that show is beholden to all that jazz in a way that I don't think it was comfortable with but that it found Mm -hmm. a way to use Mm -hmm. it's just so fascinating that he's like with this movie what, 30 years before that show, Bob mm-hmm. Fosse is directing another television show down the line. He's just, nobody even knew it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's it's such... fascinating. And I think, too, like, I, I don't know, I had the experience, I watched Fosse Verdon, and, and even with my deep love of Fosse and any learning that I'd done, I just totally spaced on the, the Gwen of it all. Oh, yeah. So, like, having that acknowledged, and now going back and watching all that jazz holding that knowledge, it just had a different ring entirely yeah i mean and he doesn't let himself off the hook right like it's not it's not a confessional exactly but it is a mature look at that relationship and And i think he's like i don't think he's ever gonna be the guy or would have ever been the guy to go to the you know morality police and be like please forgive me for i have sinned you know like i don't think that's the guy he was but he was like here's an honest presentation of my shit i am uh, not an ethical non-monogamist. <laughs> I, you know, 
I fucked her out. <laughs> yeah. But he but owns they, it. And it, yeah. Yeah. And they never left each other's lives, which is so strange and touching, right? Especially mm-hmm. in light of the, this movie and, and the way that it plays on their relationship. It's like she mm-hmm. even, she was even clearly uh, complicit's the wrong word. What was it? She was, she approves of this. Like she was, she was okay with this movie mm-hmm. because they were still together afterwards. Yeah. In a way. And, and, yeah. and yeah. I don't know. That just, that, that whole love story, because I do think it's a love story, is so fascinating to me that like they tried the married thing and that's not what their relationship was meant to be because they couldn't, they couldn't hold that space for each other, but they could still, they could still collaborate. And, and even in the making of this film, you know, that, that Anne Brian King was, you know, his, his partner during the making of all of this and that there were other women throughout the cast who he'd had affairs with or trysts or experiences or whatever you want to call it you know it was the 70s there were all kinds of words for it yeah there was yeah yeah (laughs) but yeah but yeah it's there's a there's an open heartedness to it, like a big heartedness, not an open heartedness, but yeah. uh, well, an, and, an a, and a literal open heartedness. Yeah, <laughs> and it's like how many other filmmakers can you say actually showed you their heart? And he doesn't mm. do it in any. It's not manipulative when he does it. Like I think that's that's what's so fascinating about it. He's never ever making excuses for Joe Gideon or for mm. himself, right? Like he's just presenting it. It's it's almost. Uh, like a case study mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. this sort of mania. And he's not, he's not looking for any sort of approval. You know, like, like I remember when I first watched it, and, and even now in some respects, like, there are many parts of Joe Gideon that, like, bump up against my personal politic that I should be like, I don't know if I really want to be in a room with this guy, or like, I don't really, yeah. uh, you know. But I'm still, like, Team Joe. I'm, <laughs> I'm still, like, really ready to watch him do his thing and, and feel for him and, and love him I'm like, because he's I think it's such a good representation of staying in the grapple like wrestling with the good of you and the bad of you or even outside of that binary like what what it is to be a human being yeah <laughs> and the death comes for us all <laughs> sure and, I, and maybe that's why it's okay that that Joe is such a yeah I hesitate to say this is this is an early study of toxic masculinity. I think it's just it's mm. more it thinks it's about a difficult person, right? Like that's that's what it would have been called back then. Uh, like Joe's not an anti-hero in the way that we now understand it. He is the hero of his own story, um, mm. because the hero of the story is telling it. But mm. <laughs> what what it gets is I think it's because it doesn't let him off the hook. Like he doesn't get to live yeah. to see the successes. Mm. You know, it's. It's framed as acceptance, like explicitly within the other framing device of the film, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance. But his acceptance, that big splashy production number, he's going out on his own terms. But then we see the body. Like, we know that's not what's really happening. We know it's it's a fantasy that he's built for himself to mm. get out on a, on a high. And it's just mm. the idea that Fosse knows it. Like, he knows his, this movie is about his own delusions that's mm-hmm. so that's so compelling and kind of sad and you know even if he's just pretending to be that self-aware he sells yeah. it to me like i bought it it's yeah. i just i remember watching it the first time through and just thinking this is like this is literature 
um, mm-hmm. in a really strange cinematic, like unapologetically theatrical way. It's, mm-hmm. it's just, it's like, it's like, um, I can't even come up with the appropriate, I'm thinking of uh, just this, this amalgamation of all these influences of his, but there are no influences. Mm-hmm. It's him. Like he's only drawing on his own stuff. And, mm-hmm. and then you, you see, you know, I just see something like the movie version of Chicago or, or even nine where Rob Marshall's just kind of biting the act and doing the same thing. Like what would Bob Fosse do? And you realize mm-hmm. that only Bob Fosse knew what to do. Um, yeah. Right. Like cabaret and Lenny and, and uh, even sweet charity. They're, they're, mm-hmm. they're so precise in what they want to do. They're not really the same movie in any way. Maybe some lighting choices is the closest thing there was. You know, he liked spotlights, but, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, in more ways than one, obviously. But <laughs> but yeah, it's just when you when you get to this, and it's like he only made three other features. He'd only done it in the space of a decade. How did he? How the hell did he get this good and know what to do in ways that no one had ever done it before? I'm I'm still in awe of it, and it's been, you know, it's a it's it's a forty year old movie. It's yeah. It doesn't feel dated at all. It yeah. feels like a time capsule. Like the the best, the best period pieces don't date because they like unless there's something like something from the late '80s or early '90s where the hair is a giveaway. Where it's like, oh, you, <laughs> you know, there's they didn't have that kind of product in 1865. Come on, who are you kidding, you and McGregor? But but it's um, this doesn't do that either. This feels like it was just shot like a camera followed around a bunch of people and through their lives mm. and then also somehow got to shoot the underworld the afterlife the underworld whatever you want to call it it's yeah. just so weird and then there's the point where i finally caught it the 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 electric guitar riff at the end of bye bye life mm-hmm. uh that that really weird pulsing pumping bass line it's mm-hmm. from billy joel's song it's from captain jack and <laughs> i don't know that fossey knows that like it's just there <laughs> Oh man, it's so good. That whole, yeah, that whole sequence is amazing. And I think too that he was able to like, like, I don't know, hold his entire world. Like it almost feels like he made it after he died because he's holding yeah. his whole world so well. And I don't know. And, and it, I don't know. I just keep thinking about Roy too and his performance and because that lends so much. Like I was reading the other day that Warren Beatty was considered. I heard about that too. And that, that would have been too, like yeah. a whole different. Like I don't think I. I just have a word. I'm like, no thanks, Warren. <laughs> you know, like that kind of. The particular Warren Beatty ego would have been like such a different spice. Yeah, I don't think they would have been able to work together. I mean, just like, would can you can yeah, you believe? Like I cannot believe Warren Beatty would be willing to subsume himself to another ego of that on that level and I think also having just watched a bunch of Beatty stuff fairly recently mm-hmm. I don't know that he could have done it I don't know that he's the right role character for that I think maybe mm-hmm. it was pitched to him as an extension of shampoo where you know like you're not mm-hmm. a nice guy but you think you are but yeah I don't think he would have been able to do it I just think like yeah like he could I don't know I mean no <laughs> I don't want to like you know crap on Beatty too much but <laughs> like I don't know that he, like, his ego was so, like, rock hard. Even, like, watching Shampoo, I was like, I don't, ooh, this is, <laughs> I don't think you can get underneath of that. I don't, there's no, there's no way in through that. 
So yeah. asking him to be like, yeah, here's this thing about me that is my entire thing that I'm now going to let you behind. This carefully constructed facade of sexy. <laughs> You're going to, like, that's a huge ask. And I don't know if he, uh, yeah. I wonder. He would have been willing. Yeah, I think you know, like he was he was also in that stage where he was an unquestionable hero in his own work, like Reds and um, uh, Heaven Can Wait, where he's sort of this innocent dupe of fate in both of them, right guy, right time sort of stories. Mm. That's not who Joe Gideon is. Like mm. Joe Gideon is an he's an unapologetic user of people, mm. of substances, of of art. He he inserts himself into the world and or upon the world, I guess. And and while, yeah, okay, the, the, that is kind of a, a setup for a joke about Warren Beatty inserting himself into all sorts of things. But but <laughs> it was there. I couldn't not do it. But <laughs> I'm so glad you did. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's not what this movie's about. Like, it's really not about humility or, or surrendering your image to someone else. Like, I would... I, Wish I'd gotten a chance to interview Roy Scheider even once. There's so many things I would have talked to him about, but this and Jaws would have been the two, obviously. I mean, yeah. they're just, they're leading man performances that don't look like leading man performances, right? Like he, like Quint is a big, larger than life character in Jaws, but mm-hmm. Brody's the one we follow because we identify with him because he knows he doesn't belong and we feel the same way. And in this, it's about watching that same actor four years later take control every shot of every moment and just even in scenes where he's asking people what they think he doesn't really care he want he's telling them what he wants them to say it's mm-hmm. with his posture with his eyes with that stupid hat i mean it's it's an incredible <laughs> performance yeah i think about the the scene with oh my god i i can't divorce her from the wen burden of it all remind me do you remember her name in the oh, movie um leland palmer yes no. yeah okay um, but the Not scene ranking, where, yeah. yeah, yeah, where she's rehearsing and he comes in and he kind of uses her like a mirror. Yeah. Like he asks her all of these questions, but it's almost like, I mean, the container that she's, she's rehearsing in front of a mirror and observing herself. He comes in and then figures out what he needs to figure out on her. Yeah. And she's just sort of left like, he's going to drive me nuts, <laughs> but he gets what he needs. You know, like he's, he has those people he uses as as studio mirrors, you know, and doesn't acknowledge them or credit them, but... Yeah, and it's accepted that this isn't the first time this has happened, right? Like, this is a this is a rehearsed thing between them. This has gone on yeah. before, and she knows yeah. what he wants, and she's not even... Yeah, she's she's confused but not annoyed, because it's, yeah. it's, it's an emotion she's familiar with. And she I, knows the game, right? Like, she's... And she continues doing her own thing in it. She's like, you know, that's true. I've stopped my world for this man before to help him figure out whatever issue he's having but you know i'm gonna keep doing my thing and i can i have the skills now to be like yeah 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 you know what you want already i'm just gonna keep you know ronda jumping or whatever yeah 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 and there's that practiced physicality of all of like they're all really dancers they're all really capable of movement i didn't think scheider had much experience but he's obviously like his physique is shaped for a dancer he looks like someone who could dance even if he for maybe sure. didn't but yeah it's just that that whole world looks yeah there's not a there's not a false note all the all the pieces are right mm-hmm. the cigarette smoke looks right the the mm-hmm. that that glossy lens thing that was happening in 1979 is exactly mm-hmm. right for this like if you shoot mm-hmm. it if you shoot it clean it wouldn't feel right it would feel artificial totally yeah 
It's super, just, I mean, even his, I, I was reading too that apparently the whole opening where he's doing, you know, like the chorus line sort of yeah, the audition. audition sequence, like that, I don't even know if it was a, a real thing or whatever, but apparently he had like a little bug in his ear and Fosse was feeding him things <sighs> that he could say and, you know, gestures he could make that would sort of sell it a bit more. I like, I watched that and I'm like, yep, there you go. There's a guy running the session, like for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah. I can believe it. It also it also just felt like a casual reference to a chorus line as something that he would have directed better. Like it's just, mm-hmm. you know, this is how I would have handled it. This is what I would have done. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's is, is that talent and ego. Is that only ego? Is that the point where mm-hmm. talent becomes ego or vice versa? It's it's the it's like somebody who knows himself and can't help himself. That's that's what this feels like. Yeah, hundred percent. And like the yeah, the, I don't know. The interesting thing about like the references he chooses to make and when he's being self-referential, or like you know, there's a whole thing when the I think her name is Victoria, the dancer comes over comes over to his apartment and she basically does a bit of chorus line. Right. She like stands and addresses him and then talks about her nose and how she needs to get a nose job, which is just like ripped from <laughs> Dance Ten Looks Three, you know. So, yeah, yeah. It's interesting. He must have known. He must like. He must have known, and he was. It, I, was he taunting someone about it? Was it like an in joke that he just fell in love with that he couldn't get rid of? Um, yeah. He must so, have been. Also, his daughter went on to be in it, right? So. I did. It. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Again, he was directing from beyond the grave. It's he's just setting things in motion. He's always been a spirit. <laughs> Maybe Fosse was never in the flesh. Maybe he was just... Yeah, I don't yeah. know what I'm saying. <laughs> That's, it's that funny thing, too, if he's like... He's built himself a pedestal, but he's asking you to kind of take him off of it at yeah. the same time. Well, I mean, he literally takes himself off of it at the end, right? Like, it's over. Mm-hmm. He's, mm-hmm. he's demonstrating that none of this matters. Yeah. That's still, like, I knew it was coming, but it's like... It's a gut punch. You're like, oh, you're actually going to do that. You're actually, you're going to, oh, you're dead. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. But also inside of that, that doesn't feel like a mea culpa either, or it doesn't feel like a, I don't know, like a punishment, if that makes sense. Yeah. He goes out on top in his mind anyway, right? Yeah. With a fabulous number. Yeah. And everything else gets... Heartbreaking, ridiculous. Yeah. All the stuff he, he leaves behind is still there. His legacy is his work and all that, and that's certainly the case with with Fosse. But yeah, the body bag, just like the use of that, and having the heart monitor in the background suddenly take over, or gradually, then inextricably take over the rhythms of it. I remember this the first time. Yeah, it, and it is. It's so abrupt. There's no. It's because there's no beauty in it. It's just an opaque bag mm-hmm. being zipped up and just pushed off. Mm-hmm. And then that's where the that's where the image leaves us. And it's oh right. Of course, there's nothing else. Like there's, mm-hmm. there's nothing else, and maybe, maybe the angel's not really there either. He might have hallucinated mm-hmm. the whole thing, and then we're just alone with that thought for however long it takes the credits to roll. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wish I'd and seen that it. final moment removes all the glamour. Like even in the in the mess of the entire film, even in his acknowledgement of his shortcomings or whatever, everything is still there's a little bit of glamour to it. Like the sequence of him with in the morning. It's like heartbreaking, but so st- like it's it's glamorizes it in a way. It's oh, yeah. so stylized and repeated, and 
and you kind of grow this affection for it the more times you see it in the film or at least I did and then by the oh, end yeah. you're just like it's just a bag getting way out of the way yeah yeah all the visine in the world won't get you out of it <laughs> uh, and he does uh, you know he denies or rather he Fosse denies the uh, the cliche of you know live fast die young leave a good looking corpse right because he lives um, fast but he didn't die that like he's not young by the time we mm-hmm. see him and yeah, Scheider's playing I think he's playing 10 years older than he really is or he's just supposed to look 10 years older the salt and pepper and the, the, the sense that like he's not he's, tr- mm-hmm. he's he's at a point now where the ritual of the morning and all the other stuff he's trying to maintain this thing he's not as real as he used to be but he's still pushing it and mm-hmm. it's just it's for nothing yeah it's for nothing it's it's a mm-hmm. and, I, and that's it too like Fosse's awareness of the character's vanity has to be mm-hmm. A commentary, right? It has to be an acknowledgement that we're watching this movie pick the flaws apart and and reveal just the guy who, at the very end, is vain enough that he smokes in the recovery room and refuses to, you know, he refuses to stop. He's entertaining people in the hospital because he can't stop, and mm. that's a pathology. And I think mm. he knows it. And we're still. Yeah, we're still ripped apart when when his daughter begs him not to go. Like I just I come back to that every time, and it's so, it's so simple, and the mm. way that and the way that Gideon doesn't even acknowledge it when it's happening. He's smiling at somebody else over her shoulder and talking to somebody else. Like, like both Fosse and Scheider know what that moment means. They're showing us how hollow this guy is, and how much mm. his work and his life is meant to himself. And how he can't even hear the people begging him to stay. And maybe it's supposed to be her voice in the in the, in the hospital coming through, mm-hmm. like a transmission, maybe. But I know that's there for a reason. Like, I know that's mm-hmm. there to make me realize what he's missing. Mm-hmm. And well, he even, like, earlier in the film when he leaves the studio, he, he says, like, ah, some father or something. Like, I think he's aware of his effect. I think he sees the effects of his behavior playing out all in front of him, but he just can't get off that, you know, hamster wheel of yeah. of use. Yeah, it's... I mean, even if it's exactly as it happened for Fosse, like, he, he made this mm. movie, and that guarantees that we're still talking about him, we're still, we still watch it, it's... Does that mean it was worth it? I don't know. My, my impulse mm. is to say that all art, art lives the artist, and therefore the art is important, but... Yeah, he made some people really sad. Like <laughs> that counts mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think like this. I was thinking about that just in terms of who he was in the context of the time he was alive and the shenanigans he was getting up to, and and the ripple effects of those shenanigans, and you know, all of like other other filmmakers at that time who were always up to sure. that kind of stuff too. But that this. This is such an interesting example of, like, owning it, you know? And not not in a way that's like, like, fuck you, I am who I am, take me or leave me, I'm, I'm messed up, but whatever. Like, that didn't, that wasn't what it felt like to me. Like, I don't know, it, I think it's, it affects me so much because it's like somebody, somebody just owning themselves. I don't know, I, I can't quite find a way to articulate it properly, but... Yeah, I know what like you mean. So full of ego, but yeah, but 
but also humble in a way. Like that feels like a weird word to use for Fozzie, but it's a bit of a humbling. Yeah. Like. Well, you, I mean, you put it up, you put it out there really nicely. It's a catalog of his failures um, mm-hmm. as he sees them. Mm-hmm. And so that speaks to the self-awareness that comes with, you know, humility and, and self-awareness and understanding. And, and just even the fact that he knows enough not to lionize Joe. Like, he's not presenting this guy as an almighty conqueror, which, again, I'm mm-hmm. like, Beatty would have played the guy without a regret, without any sense mm-hmm. of, of vulnerability or mortality. He was also, in 1979, he was like, good 10 years, maybe 15 years too young for the role. Mm-hmm. But I guess, you know, you cast Warren Beatty, you get your movie financed. So, of course, um, yeah. it's, it's not... But even that, too, a younger man would have changed changed the whole thing. Yeah, you the know? energy would but be him different. Him being that age was... I think, and him being at that point in his life, and I don't know, it's just a different, you carry a different, I don't know. Yeah. Well, and, and Beatty. Reflective services. Yeah, absolutely. And I think Beatty, too, would have been apologetic, because like, that was his thing, the aw shucks thing that he was doing right around that time, where mm. he wouldn't, I don't, it's, I'm about to say I couldn't see him as a director, even though I, you know, I know him primarily as a filmmaker. Mm. I don't know that he could sell theater. His energy's mm-hmm. like his energy's all wrong. Mm-hmm. Well, even like I don't know. I think of shampoo. Like so much of that for me is him being like. It's almost like, uh, like posing, <laughs> you know, like yeah, like he'll he'll do the bit and then he'll turn and you can see behind his eyes he's like, and this is my sexy face. Yeah, you know, and, and it like works if for that, that had role. come, totally, yeah. totally. But if that had come into this world, I think it just would have, yeah. Yeah, and I, think I agree. He, the theater and film energies, like that's fascinating to me that they were able to meld those. Like that, Posse could. I just believed it. Like it yeah. was. It felt like home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds messed up, but of all, yeah, I was going to say of all the movies to be comforted by, this is not one I would I would suggest to people. But if it works, it works. <laughs> yeah, I was never really, you know, like a Cinderella kid. <laughs> <laughs> Come home, throw on all that jazz, relax, enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> Get my juice box. Yeah, it's, a, it's an escape in its way. Yeah. Uh, so this is a weird segue, but uh, mm-hmm. the podcast usually closes with the question of what is it, if anything, that you've taken from, borrowed from, mm-hmm. absorbed of all that jazz. And you are a physical performer, but I don't necessarily see any real clear links is there is there something else that you've used from Fosse down the line? Yeah, I think I think for sure like it was a the first clear example that I remember seeing that that operated like I said earlier operated inside of boxes but also outside of them. Mm-hmm. Um, that somebody looked at a form and was like, "Okay, here's here's how it's been done and here's how I'm going to just like flip a couple of things." Um, to make it work for me or to to represent myself authentically inside of this space or whatever. So I think for me, I when I think of Fosse, I think of somebody just trying to think of things a little differently and also really honor their impulses. Like some of the stuff that he does, even if in his choreography, you're like, this is nuts. Like this is, <laughs> this is a weird choice. Um, and it's goofy too. Like you know, I think of um, oh, damn Yankees, the the 
the number he choreographed, uh, specifically Gwen Verdon too, you know, whatever Lola yep, wants, yep. that whole thing is so weird. <laughs> like, it's just unlike any representation of, like, uh, a seduction that I've ever seen. So, I don't know, just, uh, yeah, for me, it's just, like, like, an affirmation of the inner weirdo. And also, too, like, this movie specifically, just, like, uh, walking with that darkness, like, not, not in the, you know, stereotypical or, like, like, oft pulled on, like, broken actor, not that thing, but, like, right, the right. walking with, with all of life and all of whatever we don't know in, in one, and that that's, that's part of it, and you got to acknowledge it. The less that you can run from, the more that you can look at and be like, yeah, that's, that's the thing I do, or the more that you can crawl inside and know all of the crap you've pulled and the more you can own it, I think the the more honest the things you end up making are. I think that about sums it up. That's pretty good. <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, while you were saying that, I just I was thinking the one thing I didn't really click on about Scheider's performance and therefore the tone of the mm-hmm. film is that he is always the same. Like, Joe is always the same no matter where he is or who he's talking to, including mm-hmm. death. Like, he's a little charming, he's a little pointy, he knows what he wants, and that's, mm-hmm. th- I think that's how you handle that tone you were talking about, the, the sense that he treats the supernatural, and the, or, or at least the out-of-body, whatever it is you call that, he treats that as exactly the same relationship he has with everybody else. Yeah. And that's, maybe that's why it's so weird, because I don't think I've ever seen another movie that is that where the tone is contained in one actor and the rest of the movie is changing wildly all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think it's just like a good, a good thing to watch to be like, be you. <laughs> and like, like we're not all operating on one plane. I don't know. <laughs> That's a little woohoo maybe, but I believe it. <laughs> it's not the worst philosophy. Yeah. My thanks to Casey Roll, who is absolutely riveting in Calvin Thomas and Yona Lewis's White Lie, available today on digital and on demand. It's also available to rent at Digital Tiff Bell Lightbox. You should watch that. She's amazing in it, and it's basically Canada's version of Uncut Gems. You can find Casey on Twitter at Casey Cadoodles, K-A-C-E-Y-K-A-D-O-O-D-L-E-S, and you can find all that jazz in an excellent special edition from the Criterion Collection. Uh, It seems to have vanished from every streaming platform, but if you're in Canada, it's streaming for free on the CTV website somehow. Also, of course Casey was right, Nicole Fossey does appear in the movie, and she plays a role in the Chorus Line film as well. I guess I need to watch more musicals. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com, where I'm hosting a bunch of podcasts these days in addition to my film stuff. Go check that out. And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at SomeoneElsesMovie.com. Our theme song is by The Last Year. If you like it, or the show in general, say so. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or wherever you've been enjoying us. Every little bit helps, it truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network. They're good. Stay inside, watch movies. Maybe stay away from movie theaters, though. I'll see you next week. <laughs>